0: Philippians 2:19 But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare for they all seek after their own interests not those of Christ Jesus but you know of his proven worth that He served with me in the furtherance of the Gospel like a child serving His Father. Therefore, I hope to send Him immediately, as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord Jesus, or in the Lord, that I myself also will be coming shortly. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word, brethren. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message is The Privilege of Gospel Partnership, Encouragement Amidst Service. Encouragement amidst our service. We find ourselves, as you know, in this mini-series, another mini-series titled The Privilege of Gospel Partnership as we walk through the book of Philippians. And I hope that you have been encouraged and that you have been even challenged all the more in your Christian walk to continue to pursue gospel progress with your brethren as we walk through this series and really through this whole book. And if you remember, we've been reminded that as redeemed citizens of the kingdom... We are in a partnership with one another. We are part of the same gospel team. We are not just individuals. We have been called as believers into a community of faith. And so we are a gospel team. We are in partnership with one another. And of course, as I said last week, this partnership, and in your experience you might give testament to this, this partnership comes with various challenges. But it also comes with great blessings and privileges. Amen? Amen. Because we are a community of the faith. Not only have we been saved and redeemed in Christ Jesus, but now we um, are the the beneficiaries of wonderful blessings and privileges from our Heavenly Father um, in the fact that we are united as one. And we've been talking about some of those privileges. Last week we saw from the example of Paul. If you remember in verses 17 and 18 that in our partnership we can derive joy and we should exercise joy as we sacrifice for one another. If you remember, Paul uses this Old Testament imagery to describe his life and ministry to the Philippian church as a drink offering. As a drink offering. As the fitting climax or the capstone to the Philippians' faith. In essence, what Paul says is even if I wind up being killed, if I wind up being martyred for your faith, you know what? I rejoice in this. I rejoice. To live is Christ and to die is gain for Paul. Paul views himself as as expendable. Death for Christ and for his people was for Paul the, the best case scenario and not the worst case scenario. By way of application, we said last week that even though we may not be martyred for our faith as Christians living in America, the very call to follow Jesus as a Christian is a call to daily die to yourself. If you've never heard that, then you need to go back and check the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And the call of Christ, even in Mark chapter 8, to die to yourself if you want to come after him, follow after him. It's a call to follow in his footsteps and to be daily dying, laying down our lives for other people in this Christian journey that we are on. This type of perspective obviously flows from a heart of love love for God. And love for others is really the fuel that drives that kind of perspective that I want to lay down my life for others. It's love. And it also, as we've been learning in the book of Philippians, and in particular chapter 2, it requires a heart of humble self-sacrifice. Right? One of the cardinal virtues for us as believers, in addition to love and holiness, is humility. The humility that Paul has been instructing about in the previous context. If you look back in chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, just glance there. Remember that in those verses, he instructed them to unity. Unity in the face of opposition and unity in the face of suffering for the sake of the gospel. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, if you glance there, he says, You know what's going to lead to this unity? Humble selflessness. Putting the needs of others before your own. And then in chapter 2, verses 5-11, through 11, he says, let me show you the ultimate example of humble selflessness and His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Christ, he says. The eternal Son of God. The Godman, who though possessing all rights and privileges, he says, willingly and joyfully set aside those for a time in order to serve you by dying on the cross for your sins. And the point, of course, is this. Go do likewise, Philippian believers. Emulate the example of humble selflessness found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul has been teaching us, right? That the Lord Jesus is the ultimate example of joyful, humble selflessness. In verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2, last week, we saw that Paul is an example of humble selflessness, joyful humble selflessness, in his perspective about his, his service to the faith of the Philippian believers. But now in verses 19 through 24, we see yet another example of joyful, selfless humility from another gospel partner, and his name is Timothy. Timothy is the focus of verses 19 through 24. But I want you to keep that broader framework in mind. And what Paul has been dealing with as we head into this, the idea of humble selflessness, if we're going to walk in in a holy, set-apart gospel partnership with one another. In Paul's example, we learned last week that in our gospel partnership, we have the privilege of experiencing joy amidst sacrifice. Well, now in the example of Timothy, brethren, we learn that in our gospel partnership we have the privilege of being an ongoing encouragement to one another amidst our service our self-sacrificial service Timothy was a great encouragement to the, to the apostle Paul if you've read through some of the letters and even through the book of Acts you recall this young partner in the faith from the from Acts chapter 6 on if you recall right now Paul is in jail he has certain limitations, right? Even though he has certain freedoms to minister to people, he's really on, on house arrest. So he is restricted to a certain extent, but he also ver- has the freedom to minister to people and to have visitors. And so, as he awaits the verdict from the high ups concerning his future, he would love to see the Philippian church. He would love to visit them to see how they are doing. And he's confident, somewhat confident, that he's going to be able to do that. But in the meantime, Timothy is with Paul in Rome, encouraging Paul and ministering to Paul. And so Paul's desire and his plan, Lord willing, as he says later essentially, is to send Timothy to the Philippians for a twofold purpose. On the one hand, he wants Timothy to update them on how Paul is doing, on how he's, do- how he's doing. The Philippian believers love Paul. Um, They are eager to hear how Paul is doing in jail. What's going to become of him? Timothy is going to be sent back to Philippi to update them on how Paul is doing. But secondly, Timothy is going to go check on how they're doing. And in particular, their response to this letter right here. Timothy is going to go back to Philippi and get an updated litmus test And then come back to report to Paul about the spiritual well-being of these Philippian believers and this church. On how they are going to respond to this particular letter. And so this is a super important mission that Timothy is going to go on. But he is the right man for the job and for the mission. He has long been a faithful gospel partner of Paul. Paul's known Timothy for more than a decade now. We don't know exactly for how long, but we do know that according to Acts chapter 16, Paul met Timothy on his second missionary journey. Timothy was a, was a son of a, of a Greek father, but also the son of a Jewish mother. So he was birth, uh, uh, versed in both cultures, but most likely he was educated and raised up in Hellenistic Greek culture, primarily educationally. And so this young man probably in his early 20s when Paul met him back in Acts chapter 16 had a great spiritual pedigree and spiritual heritage. He came from a great spiritual stock if you will. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 3 through 7, we're told that his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois had faithfully poured into Timothy. And 2 Timothy chapter 3:15, we saw this a couple of Sundays ago, tells us that from childhood from his toddler years, from infancy, Timothy learned the sacred scriptures, and so think about this: he had a great spiritual upbringing, in particular from his mom and his grandmother. We don't know whatever happened to his father; he's only mentioned in Acts chapter sixteen, reference there. As a side note, parents, can I say this? Don't ever think that you're faithful and consistent investment into your children, especially from the time that they are little, is for naught. Don't ever think that. It's very easy as parents to begin to see some of the weaknesses in our kids, sins, right? Frailties, whatever. And you wonder sometimes, man, where is everything that we're pouring into them? How come they never seem to get it? Can you say amen, parents? But of course, our parents said the same thing about us, right? Especially this guy, Campus Hernandez, right? This it's a you know, rascal from the time that I was little. Don't ever think that it's useless, however. That it will go nowhere. Just look at Timothy. For the most part, his, his mom and his granny took the responsibility of pouring into him. Of investing into this man. Again, we don't know what happened to his, his father. But the lesson for us is this. Just be faithful, parents. Especially beginning with us dads, because ultimately the buck stops with you fathers, me included. And so just be faithful, leave the results to the Lord. But the point is that since his 20s, back in Acts 16, Timothy has been one of Paul's faithful gospel partners. He's been with Paul when he wrote Second Corinthians, Colossians, First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, Philemon, and our book, our letter, Philippians here. He's been with Paul through all of those writings. He's represented Paul in different places, especially in places like Corinth. Easy place or hard place? Not an easy place, right? Corinth. Later on, he will do so in Ephesus as the pastor in a very strategic location of Ephesus. And so Timothy has been faithful. And now here he is with Paul in Rome as Paul is in jail on house arrest. And as the apostle sits in jail... This gospel partner is yet again providing huge encouragement to the Apostle Paul. And so through the example of this young pastor, Timothy, then, right, we see some great benefits and privileges which come from our connection with one another and gospel partnership with one another. And so I want to what I want to do is walk us through some of these beautiful verses and just glean, okay, glean some marks of an encourager. What are some marks of an encourager? Timothy was an encourager. And I pray that each of us in here, that you would want to be an encouraging type of a person. That you view our partnership with one another and and you view that as, you know, I want to be an agent of encouragement in the life of my brothers and sisters in Christ. I want to be an agent of encouragement as a spouse to my spouse. I want to be an agent of encouragement in the lives of my kids. I want to be an agent of encouragement as a child young and older to my parents, to my mom and dad. I hope that that is your desire. So what are some marks of an encourager, right? There are many here. But I bolded down to just four. We could do this thing and do a two or three part series, okay? But I don't want to be in Philippians for two or three or four years. You know what I'm saying? So I just chose four. And what I want to do is pose these in the form of questions, okay? And how you answer these questions will tell you just how much of an encourager you really are and perhaps what areas of your life you need to continue to grow in as far as being an encourager by the grace of God. Amen? By the grace of God. Question number one, as you take notes, is this. Are you striving for like-mindedness in Christ? Are you the type of a person who is striving for like-mindedness in Christ? Encouragers strive for like-mindedness in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, encouragers are not mavericks. Are not individualistically driven people. I remember having an, an intern who we had sort of commissioned to oversee a couple of our ministries. And I remember uh, bring, having to bring him in because as, I'm, as we're watching him from a distance and as, as the flock is interacting with him, he's sort of going off doing his own thing, not really with the vision of the church. And so we brought him in, we met regularly. But this one in particular was me wanting to put some fire under him, you know what I mean? And I asked him, hey, talk to me about these things that you're doing, some of these initiatives and all of that. And as he uh, opened up, you know how he began? He said, you know, what you need to understand about me is that I'm, I'm sort of a maverick. You know what I mean? I'm sort of a maverick. I'm sort of a gunslinger. I shoot from the hip. That's how he began this whole thing. So I let him talk and open up, right, and talk about these things. And I said, let me ask you something. Do you take pride in being a maverick? Do you take pride in that? He says, "Well, yeah, of course. You've got to kind of be your own man." I said, "No, you don't. No, you don't. You do need to have convictions. You can have your own, even your own personal opinions and preferences that may be very good ones for you." I said, "But ultimately, at the end of the day, you always have to be asking the question: What is not only good for me, but what is good for the body of Christ?" And so we had a conversation about this, brethren. Listen, individualistic Christians are not encouraging Christians. We cannot be mavericky Christians. Rogue Christians. Sometimes this can happen intentionally. Sometimes this can happen unintentionally for the most part. Or we don't even realize this. People who pride themselves in independent type thinking. Right? Irrespective of what the Word of God says. They strive... Rather, on the other hand, godly Christians who are gospel partners, faithful gospel partners, strive for like-mindedness in gospel priorities. And Timothy was this kind of a, of, a, of a follower of Paul and ultimately of Jesus. He fought for like-mindedness. Look at verse 19. But I hope in the Lord Jesus, he says, to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Again, Paul would love to see them, be encouraged by them. But since he cannot do that, he's going to send Timothy, right? Look down in verse 23. He reiterates his desire to see them. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately. As soon as I see how things go with me, I don't know what's going to, what's going to happen. And that hope there in verse 23 uh, is not wishful thinking, but it's confident expectation. Again, Paul doesn't know for sure what's going to befall him. But he's confident, right? And he entrusts all future plans to the Lord. Look in verse 24. And I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. In other words, this is Paul's way of entrusting his future plans to the Lord and in essence saying, if the Lord wills. We're studying the book of James right now. We're going to get there very soon, right? Where James says in chapter 4, verse 15, we should never presume upon the will of God. We should always say, if the Lord wills, right? in the sense that we really believe that from the heart, that we're God-dependent people. That's what Paul is saying here. And so as he awaits the final verdict, his plan in the meantime is to send Timothy. And the question that you and I should ask ourselves is this. What is it about this young gospel partner, Timothy, who later on would pastor the church at Ephesus? What is it about this young gospel partner that encourages Paul so much and gives him confidence that he can actually send him to Philippi and he's going to accomplish the mission. What is it about him? Yes, it's true that Timothy is present and available at all times. We'll talk about that later on. That's very important. But Paul trusts this young Christian for a particular reason. And the reason is given to us in verse 20, if you notice. For I have no one else, he says, of kindred spirit. I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Paul says, you know why I want to send Timothy? And why I have the confidence to send Timothy for this uh, very critical mission? By the way, it's not like he could take a Delta airline flight right there. It's going to be a 30 day plus travel on ship For Timothy, 30 days plus is generally what it would take to get from Rome to a place like Philippi, if he even survives in some cases. So he trusts him, however. And he says, I trust him because he's a kindred spirit. That translation there, kindred spirit, translates two words. The word soul, and the second word is the word equal. In other words, he is equal in soul to me. What a statement huh kindred spirit equal in soul Timothy is a man brethren who shares we might say the same heart that Paul shares they share the same heart their heart hearts beat the same you might say as it was said of David right that Timothy is a man after Paul's own heart they share the same heart This isn't the same, the first time that Paul expresses this about about this young pastor, Timothy, right? There's a loving sentiment. If you turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, keep your finger there in Philippians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, notice this. Paul is instructing the Corinthians here basically to walk in unity. And he says, ultimately, you shouldn't be. Picking sides because we're all servants of Christ. the beginning of chapter 4, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Stop saying you're a Paul, you're a Peter, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, because this is what we all are. We are just stewards, ultimately, of the mysteries of God. But then down in verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 4, notice what he says, Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Every leader, by the way, ought to be able to say this, Right? Yes, we are fallen creatures saved by grace. Yes, we're broken, but every leader ought to be able to say this. Dad, you should be able to say this to your family by the grace of God. Even in weakness when we have to confess our sin to them, right? Be imitators of me as I'm following Jesus. Family, as I am following Christ, you follow me. When I don't follow Jesus, you don't follow me. You keep following who? Jesus. Same thing. Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Verse 17, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy in other words I can't be with you Corinthians but I'm going to send to you Timothy who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord and he will remind you of my ways notice that something practical here his life his ways which are in Christ just as I teach everywhere in every city you see that not only what I teach but he's going to remind you of my ways even his, Paul's righteous life in application of the doctrine, right? Of the teaching. Wow. Note that. Timothy was such a kindred spirit. So like-minded with the Apostle Paul. So in tune with Paul's teaching and his example, right? His ways. That it's as if Paul himself were there with the Corinthians when Timothy is there. Wow. That's good stuff, isn't it? And Paul is not just talking here about Timothy sharing his opinions. Everybody can defer in those secondary things, preferences, etc. Paul is talking, brethren, about the fact that he and Timothy share the same mind of Christ. In accordance with the, with the truth, Paul is tuned in to what Christ says, and Timothy is tuned in to what Christ says. Their like-mindedness is rooted in the teaching of the truth and in the application of the truth. Timothy is an encouragement to Paul because of their oneness with regards to the truth of the gospel and the implementation of the truth of the gospel. Mark that. Boy, I got to tell you, there are few things more encouraging than when people in the church are like minded like this. Few things more encouraging, brethren. And like minded because they are bibbling in their thinking. You know what I mean? because they are bible saturated in their thinking in the truth of the gospel and then they put the principles into practice and yet yes there might be some differences in all of that in terms of the implementation for us as Christians but there is a like-mindedness on the principles and under direction that we need ahead we're not talking here by the way just for the sake of clarity about uniformity Where everybody looks the exact same way. Where we are the exact same replica of one another. No, there's uniqueness in the body of Christ. But we are members of one another, yes? I'm not talking about being the exact replica of one another of uniformity. We are talking about like-mindedness so that we pull in one direction together. In the implementation of the truth even. Right, remember unity in Philippians is not just the the presence of peaceful relationships, it's also the presence of the pursuit of common purpose. Cohesiveness as we move in one direction together for the greater progress of the gospel. That's unity. It's peace and the pursuit of common purpose. Pulling in one direction together. You know, I grew up in Iwana. And, um, and eventually, I even did some coaching of, of Olympic teams, the WANA Olympic teams back in LA. And it was such a fun endeavor and all of that. But one of my favorite games growing up in WANA was that game, Tug of War. How many of you remember that game? Remember that game? You had this, this circular rope, a circle rope. And then in Iwana, you have the four colors, right? If you look down on the ground right now, we have that here. We have an Iwana square, four colors, red, white, or not red, white, red, blue, green, and got to remember this, and yellow, right? Four colors. So you get in this tug-of-war game, two players from each team and couples coming in, and they're all pulling towards their color, trying to grab this bean bag that is about four or five feet away from them, right? And so some people think it's all raw strength. Right. Like I would coach these teams and and these big kids would go in there and our teams were always these little guys, you know, or these little girls who would go in there. We're thinking, man, we're going to get smoked here. Right. But then all of a sudden, based upon how we train them, we would say, listen, it is not about even your strength. It's not even about um, how big a person is or how much, how many muscles these other kids have. It's can you both leverage your, in terms of teamwork, your strength so that you pull in one direction together and you endure through that longer than anybody else? And guess what? 70, 80% of the time we would actually win that event, even with our little people, you know? Because the whole point was let's pull in one direction together. Brethren, Paul is saying Timothy is that kind of an individual. He's the type of an individual who doesn't pull in, a, in another direction. He is pulling in the same direction for the furtherance of the Gospel. He is my partner in that sense. He is like-minded. Pulling like a kindred spirit in the same direction. He's already called them to this like-mindedness back in chapter 1, verse 27. Look there. Chapter 1, verse 27, he says, I want you to be uh, of one mind, he says. Literally of one soul. Striving together for the faith of the Gospel, he says. Don't be individualistic, Philippians. Don't be proud in terms of thinking that you're free thinkers. There's no virtue in that before the Lord. No. Strive together for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 2. Notice, he says that you need to be united in spirit. Literally be one-souled, he says. Be single-minded so that you walk in the unity of the gospel. So he's already been encouraging them along these lines. He says, Timothy is that kind of an individual. He's like-minded. Now let's ask the question, how do we do this? How do we, like Timothy, become like-minded this way so that we're, in a mutual, we're, we're mutually encouraging one another? How do we cultivate this kind of like-mindedness with one another? I think it's primarily twofold, brethren. There's other things that we can add to this. But first of all, I think if we want to be like-minded with one another in the furtherance of the gospel, in the truth of the Word of God, then we need to be committed to, to God's Word, to rightly dividing the Word of God, to studying the Word of God, to being Bibbling types of Christians, right? Bible-saturated types of Christians. Not only Christians who know the Word, but like James chapter 1 says, be doers of the Word. We need to be committed to the Word of God because that becomes our, our compass for life, doesn't it? We unite right there. We can have opinions and all of that and preferences, but hey, if the Word of God says this, hey, everybody needs to line up because this is God's Word. This has nothing to do with anybody's opinion. This is God's Word. Line it up, right? So we need to be committed to the Word of God if we're going to be like-minded with one another. Two, I think that we need to be spending time with one another. We need to be practicing community with one another so that we learn to think the same in accordance with the Word of God and the righteousness that is an application of the Word of God. This is part of the reason why it's not about our rule. We encourage you for the glory of God and for your good and for the good of your brethren to spend time with one another both informally as well as formally as you plug into midweek small groups, HDGs, right? Home discipleship groups, men's and women's small groups. These are Shepherding mechanisms, brethren, shepherding hubs, shepherding mechanisms for you to get to know others and for them to get to know you for your good, for the benefit of your brethren. Don't see it as a rule. See it as a, as relationships that we're pointing you to so that you pursue that. Right. So a commitment to obeying God's word and to church life will only cultivate like minded unity in God's truth and in his ways of righteousness. You can't be neglecting Bible study in your own life, application of the Word of God. You can't be a no-show as far as when the preaching of the Word of God is taking place. You can't be a no-show as far as not being involved in any small groups. You can't be a no-show in terms of being gone half of the time from the church life. You can't be be absent from study and from community and from church life and think that you're going to be like-minded. And then you sort of insert yourself back into the church and you're thinking, wow, how come everybody's going the opposite direction? It's you that's going the wrong direction. You haven't been around. You haven't been in the Word. You haven't been in church life. You cannot cultivate like-minded unity brothers and sisters in Christ if you are not in the Word and if you are not in one another's lives learning to think Christ's thoughts after Him. Amen? So we need to be this way by the grace of God do you strive for like-mindedness with others? Nothing more encouraging, brethren, than for Christians to be kindred spirits, to be single-souled in mindset so that we're pulling in one direction together for the faith of the Gospel. Amen? Encouragers strive for like-mindedness. That's our first mark. Secondly, posing it by way of a question. Second question, are you sympathetic toward others? Are you sympathetic toward others? Encouragers are sympathetic people when it comes to the needs and the spiritual well-being of others. They are mindful of others. Look at verse 20 again. For I have no one else of kindred spirit, speaking of Timothy, who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Underline that. Genuinely be concerned for your welfare. I love this. Paul says, not only is Timothy my kindred spirit, but let me tell you something else about this young guy. Let me tell you something else about him. He genuinely cares about people. He cares about you, Philippians. Oh, there are Christians, but not all Christians always genuinely care about people as we should, brothers and sisters. Amen? We can all grow in this particular area. We're often oblivious to the needs of other people around us. We're often not even mindful of what others are going through. Do you see the words there, be concerned, in verse 20? You see that? Genuinely, be concerned. Interestingly, later in chapter 4 and verse 6, if you want to take a look at chapter 4, verse 6, that same word is translated as be anxious. Be anxious. Be anxious. There, in chapter 4, verse 6, it's used negatively, right? We should not sin by being anxious or or stressed out. Instead, we ought to be prayerful, God-dependent people laying our needs before the Lord. That's negative there. But here in chapter 2, verse 20 of Philippians, it's used positively for being sincerely concerned for people. For being sincerely preoccupied with the needs of others. Not in a stressed out kind of a way. Put in a way where it's like, man, I really, really, really want to put myself in their shoes. I really, really feel some, not all of what they're experiencing. Paul says, this is my child in the faith, Timothy. He cares. He's genuinely concerned for others. Now, why is Timothy so caring and sympathetic? Look in verse 21. For, there's the explanation, they all seek after their own interests not those of Christ Jesus. So you know what? Why Timothy is like this? Because he's selfless. He doesn't elevate his needs above others. He doesn't have a, an agenda above that of Jesus Christ's agenda to reach the world for himself. Paul's already spoken of some selfish Christians like that back in chapter 1 verse 15 and verse 17 who are gospel preachers, right? They're preaching Christ. He says it, but they're selfishly motivated, self-promoting, self-centered. They're in it for what they can get out of it rather than for how they can invest themselves into others from the heart. He says, not Timothy. Not my brother, Timothy. He's the type of humble Christian who encourages me because he's not self-focused. He's not self-absorbed. He's not self-preoccupied, right? Ever meet encouragers like that, brethren? People who are encouraging in that way? it has been a, a number of them over the years. i got to just testify to one of them, this brother who would often meet with me probably once every couple of months, and he was the ultimate encourager. And he would often preference, he would take me out for a meal, and then he would often preface uh, our conversation and say, I know that as a pastor, I can imagine that all you ever do when you meet with people is hear the negative things. And I will preach your brother, you know, internally, internally, you know. He says, I know that that's probably what happens, but I just want to encourage you. It was like a broken record with this guy, and he meant it. He lived it. I just want to encourage you. I want to pray for you. I want you to know that I'm always praying for you. I'm praying for Andrea. I'm praying for the kids. I'm praying for our church. I'm praying for the reception of the Word of God. He says, let me tell you how I'm applying the messages that you're preaching right now. (laughs) That, brethren, right there is the greatest encouragement you can give any pastor. Amen, pastors, elders? How you're applying the Word of God to your life not for our sake, so that God would bless you as you apply the Word of God. And he would share that with me. Huge, huge encouragement to my soul. You know what was interesting about this brother? He had a lot of trials, a lot of trials, a lot of hurts, a lot of unmet expectations, a lot of disappointments. If I were to Spend two hours telling you, I can tell you over and over again, all of the examples of how his life didn't go the way that he, from his perspective, thought it would go. But he honored the Lord and he was always joyful no matter what. He had trials. He had hurts, pains, just as you and I do. But instead of being fixated upon himself, he was genuinely concerned for other people. He cared about other people, right? Timothy, brethren, was that, this kind of man, He was a man who was genuinely concerned for the spiritual well-being of others, especially these Philippian believers. And all of this is a huge encouragement to the Apostle Paul in that partnership with Timothy. Can it be said of you this morning that you're a sympathetic encourager? Can it be said that you're the type of person who others know really, really, genuinely care? You are sincerely concerned for their spiritual well-being and you're willing to put aside your own needs for their particular needs. Are you that kind of a person? You know, these days we often complain so much about social media and smartphones and all of that. But how about leveraging those electronic devices all the more to encourage people? How about that? Some of you do an amazing job with that, by the way. You've already been an encouragement to me. i got to tell you, as your pastor, for the last eight months, the texts and all of that, I don't always have the opportunity to respond, brethren, right? You always know that I have a good reason why I won't respond right away. But what an encouragement. You leverage social media for the sake of encouraging me and encouraging one another because I've heard from others texts that they receive from certain individuals in this church. How about leveraging social media all the more, right? Reaching out with phone calls and encouraging texts. A message about something that encouraged you from the Word of God in the daily Bible reading. Or asking, hey, how can I be praying for you guys? Go! Share prayer requests over texting. Messaging, right? We have so many apps now. Are we leveraging those for selfish purposes or for the purpose of encouraging others to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ? Inviting someone out for coffee or for a meal. Writing a thoughtful card or a note, right? We can also... Show sympathy and genuine care for others by meeting a need, right? Don't be the Christian who, when there's a need expressed in the church, publicly even, right, that you're the the Christian who basically says, well, I hope someone steps in to fill that need. I hope someone does that. You know what? I'm going to be praying for that, right? Kind of in a self-righteous way, albeit unintentionally. Be that person who is on the forefront of showing genuine concern by jumping in and meeting that need. Or if that is not your gift or ability, to get, listen, go out and recruit others. Help your pastors and elders by recruiting others to go and meet that need. That's how you might be able to show genuine concern for others. Amen? Some of you, by the way, have done that. You've helped meet needs and ministry endeavors here. Encouragers are sympathetic Genuinely concerned, caring Christians from the heart. Are you sympathetic towards the needs of others? Timothy encouraged Paul because he was that kind of a Gospel partner. He was sympathetic. He genuinely cared. Third question. Third question. Are you dependable in your commitments? Are you dependable in your commitments? Gospel partners who are encouragers are dependable people. Timothy was a trustworthy, faithful, dependable Christian. Look at verse 22. But you know. In other words, you know this beyond the shadow of a doubt. This is not a a maybe. Says you know this about Timothy. Of his proven worth. Of his proven worth. Stop right there. Beautiful word that Paul uses here. Translated proven worth. It's the word dokimazo in the Greek. You've heard this word before. I've heard it from... Couple of messages here over the last year that I listened to. It's a word which means to test something for the sake of approval. To undergo testing for the sake of determining its authenticity or genuineness. That's the idea. It was used in the olden days for the process of of taking metal or gold through multiple cycles of exposing those metals to intense heat. What was the purpose? To determine whether they were authentic or genuine metal or gold. Paul says, hey, this is Timothy. This is Timothy. You know what encourages me so much about Timothy as my gospel partner? He's not a fake. He's not a facade, a human facade. He's the real deal, Timothy. He's proven. He's proven. He's not a flake. He's a man who you can depend upon. That's why I'm sending him. I trust that he's gonna represent me well and ultimately represent our King and His Word as He checks in on you guys, as He updates you about you about me. He's proven I can depend on Timothy. Again, remember Paul has already sent Timothy to Corinth. Not an easy place, right? Divisive Corinth. Later on, he's going to go to Ephesus. Strategic location for the sake of the Gospel. Not an easy place. Idolatrous kind of a place. Now Timothy's going to go to Philippi. And Paul says, I trust him. He's dependable. Dependability is huge, brethren. Few things more discouraging in Christian ministry than Christians who drop the ball on a consistent basis in ministry. Few things. Christians who are not dependable, you can't take them at their word, right? One minute they say one thing to you, the next minute they say so- they do something else. They don't follow through. And they're the type of people oftentimes who are always speaking out of both sides of their mouths, right? There's inconsistency. That they say they're going to do something and then the next minute they're a no-show, no dependability. This week in preparation for this message on my feed, news feed, I kind of try to keep in touch with some of the current events and all of that, so I follow certain news feeds. And on my feed popped up an article showing some corporate testimonies from the business world. And do you know what executives say in the business world, in the secular world? Do you know what they say is one of the top marks that they look for when hiring or even promoting an employee in that? particular business consistently across the board top five in most of these lists dependability dependability can they be trusted to get the job done to follow through right can they be trusted to keep their word because if they have to follow up constantly because they're not following up then they're expendable they're not needed if you as the boss have to do everything for them right that's the way it works Can your supervisor trust you to follow through? Dependability is important in the secular world. You say, well, pastor, this is very different. This is the church. You know what I'm saying? It's like spiritual kind of endeavors here. This is way different than secular circles. This is not the business world here, right? Really? Listen, if this is the case in the business world, brethren, why should we lower the bar in the church? Why should we lower the bar in the church? When the boss with a big B is the Lord Jesus Christ who gave everything for you. Everything. So that you would be trustworthy by his grace. Perfect? No. Of course not. Does God deserve less than our best? Because he's God? Because it's biblical Christianity? Because because he's gracious? Does this mean that God requires less from us? That we don't need to be dependable because after all, hey, he'll forgive us. Don't worry, he's gracious. That is a cheap treatment of grace. I'll tell you that right now as believers. Grace does not condone or diminish or dismiss the importance of being faithful, right? We are faithful now out of gratitude and worship and joy because of Jesus and because He's given everything for us. We want to be trustworthy. We want to be faithful. We want to be dependable Christians, right? This is one of of my vetting criteria when looking for Servants or leaders in the church over time is summed up in the acronym FAT. Don't get offended, okay? FAT, F A T, faithful, available, what? Teachable. You guys know the acronym, right? Faithful, available, teachable. Someone may not have the training, right? Or have the know how, but I can always work with people who are faithful or dependable, available, and especially teachable people who are humble, who want to learn. Because that's what people did for me, brethren, especially early on. They worked with me. I wasn't trained, right? I didn't have um, the ability to do this, right? There was a calling upon my life. But what did they do? They came alongside of me to, to invest into me. And they required of me faithfulness, availability, and teachability, right? So important in ministry and at the top of the list is faithfulness or dependability. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1. It is required of stewards, this is all Christians, that one be found ready, trustworthy or faithful or dependable. Is the idea. Luke chapter 16 verse 10. Jesus said, he who is faithful in little is faithful in much, right? Before you can be entrusted with more or bigger things, you must prove yourself dependable. This is one of the reasons why we, we, are, we need to be patient and use wisdom and discernment and be prayerful and be engaging. We need to be very careful about putting folks in highly influential roles in the church, right? Too hastily until they prove themselves over time, right? As they serve little by little and that grows, they prove themselves over time that they're faithful and that they're dependable. That's the way it is in the secular world as well. How much more in the church, right, when our business is the business of caring for souls. We don't just allow you to teach whenever you want, publicly or privately, because you're imparting life-giving words. So we want to know, are you accurately accurately cutting the word straight? Are you applying the Word of God rightly? Are you diagnosing the problem in somebody before we begin to tell you how to live, right? We want to be faithful to the Word of God. It, should that... Um, sort of put fear in us? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense of a reverential awe that we need to take this word seriously, but no in the sense that it's not about God being an ogre, right? That if you make a mistake or you say something wrong, all of a sudden, bam, he's going to get you, right? No. The issue is faithfulness. And so testing the dependability of a person is absolutely a good thing. It's a biblical thing, right? Again, he who is faithful in little is faithful in much. Fourth and final question, brethren, is this. Are you loyal toward others? Are you loyal toward others? Encouragers are loyal people, right? Now, to be sure and be clear, there's a corrupt, sinful style of loyalty, right? The type of loyalty that ignores sin, that sweeps sins under the rug. This is not the type of loyalty Paul is talking about here. Look at verse 22, middle of the verse. But you know of his proven worth. That he, Timothy, served with me, ready for this, in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Note Paul's connection with Timothy is for the sake of the gospel, right? It's in this gospel that they have this wonderful father-son relationship. They are, they are family. They are spiritual family, right? And Paul often refers to Timothy as his, his child in the faith in some of his letters. When he references Timothy... And so it's on the basis of this family relationship in the faith that Timothy is marked by loving loyalty to Paul as if Paul was his father, right? He is his spiritual father. And Paul knows that Timothy has Paul's back. He knows this. He's got my back, so to speak, in the gospel, right? How does a son relate to his father? With love, trust, and loyalty, fidelity, and devotion. Amen? Otherwise, it's not a good relationship. But there's devotion there. There's loyalty. There's fidelity there. I'll tell you what, biblical loyalty is hard to come by these days, brethren. Some of you can give testament to this even in your own experience. And even in the church, it's hard to come by. But biblical loyalty is very encouraging, right? And again, we're not talking about this corrupt loyalty, right? That that chucks a commitment to the truth and to holiness. That is no loyalty at all. And we're also not talking about the type of so-called loyalty, fake loyalty by people who who smile at you to your face, but behind their back they have a knife ready to stab you with it, figuratively speaking. You know what I'm saying? We're not talking about that kind of so-called fake loyalty, superficial loyalty. Neither of those are biblical loyalty. On the other hand, the type of encouraging loyalty Paul had in Timothy was a companion ready through thick and thin. A devoted friend. A, the kind of friend who was with Paul in the green pastures of his ministry and life, or he was with Paul in the dark valleys of life. In the pains and the trials of life. Timothy was with Paul out in the free world, or now he's with him in jail, right? Ministering to Paul. In the green pastures or in the dark valleys of life. Mark it. Proverbs 17.17 says a friend loves at all times and a brother is born, ready for this, for adversity. That's how you know that there's a true friend there. Proverbs 18.24, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. This was Timothy. Stuck by Paul's side. Scripture affirms and encourages true loyalty, brethren. Remember um, Ruth, in the book of Ruth, Sticking by her mother-in-law until she knew that Naomi was going to be okay, right? Was with her the whole time, never left her side. Remember Jonathan's loyalty to David? Some people want to twist that and make it something that it was not. It was a friendship. And Jonathan was loyal to David. What? In his sin? No. Because he knew the greater plan of God. And David was part of that. And so later in Philippians four three, Paul writes, Indeed, true companion... Or loyal companion might be a translation is also is is, is something that he's calling somebody to do in the church at Philippi to come alongside of two women who are not getting along. And he says, loyal companion, true companion, come alongside of these women. Help them. Help them be at peace with one another. Loyal partner, loyal companion. May I ask you, are you loyal toward others? Are you loyal toward others in the biblical sense? Or are you the proverbial fair-weather spouse, fair-weather friend, fair-weather child, right? Turning your back on your parents. They don't scratch your back, kids, young and older, when you disagree with them, right? If they're calling you to sin against God's Word, that's very different, right? But do you betray your parents? Are you loyal in the biblical sense toward your parents? Spouses, same thing. What about as brothers and sisters in Christ? Are, are we loyal to one another? loyal enough to tell one another the truth in love when we need it because we're concerned about the glory of Jesus and our holiness, right? Not on preference issues or secondary issues or opinion matters, but on biblical truth. When we see somebody going astray, do we come alongside of them and encourage them in the truth and practice biblical loyalty in doing that? See? That's what we're talking about here. You love them so much that when you see them going astray, you're willing to tell them the truth. You want to be an encourager like Timothy? Be like-minded, sympathetic or caring, dependable, loyal, right? This is how we can be an encouragement to one another as gospel partners. Amen, brethren? May the Lord help us all the more by His grace, by His grace alone to be those kinds of brethren in church family. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank You for Your precious Word that Lord encourages us, convicts us, realigns us, to Your will. Help us to be an encouragement to one another, all the more as a church. Thank You for the many encouraging things You are doing in our body and for the way that brethren and prayer requests and service, even behind the scenes, wanting no credit, are doing that already. Help us to excel still more as a church family, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.